chapter 1. Our text is chapter 2, part of chapter 2. We'll get there uh, soon, Lord willing. Pastor's been going through some parables in Mark and in talking about the parable of the soils and the sower and the seeds. We, we've been thinking about evangelism and maybe like me, you have considered Jesus as the model for the perfect evangelist. And doesn't it sometimes seem unfair how good Jesus was at evangelism? He shows up at a well, asks for a drink of water, and before too much longer, the whole town gets saved. That's not fair. That is not fair. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I guarantee you I have never had that experience. And you think, it's just not fair because not only does Jesus have his theology perfectly in line, but, but he knows the struggles of each person's heart. He could tell that woman exactly where her great thirst was. It's not fair because I don't know all that. It's not fair because Christ can do miraculous things and I can't. Jesus knew what questions to ask and how to answer and how to redirect those who asked him questions that were meant to trip him up. It just doesn't seem fair. But would we read the scripture and come to the conclusion that Jesus was successful 100% of the time he shared the gospel? It's a trick question, and you know it's a trick question. But think about it. How often did Jesus give the gospel to scribes and to Pharisees and how many of them repented? You could count them on one hand and still have fingers left over. What about the rich young ruler? He comes, he asks a question, and you think, man, he is ready to be saved. And yet he walks away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus is feeding crowds of thousands and feeding them loaves and, and, and fishes. And, and, and these people are just really glued into his message, right? Surely all of these are going to follow him to the cross. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have life. And most of them walked away. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus says to the twelve, uh, you, you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, certainly if Jesus went to his hometown, the people there would accept him, right? No, in fact, he didn't do very many miracles there because of their unbelief. They took offense at him, Matthew says. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and in his own household. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus doesn't have a perfect record. Or does he? Again, a trick question. Was Jesus' evangelism perfect or not? Were all of his evangelistic efforts successful? Well, it all comes back to how you define success. Right, Isaiah, in Isaiah, God says that his word would not return empty, but that it would accomplish its purpose every single time. So if Jesus gave the word, didn't it accomplish its purpose? 
And we've been hearing about those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, but there are some who don't. So what would we expect those who don't have eyes to to see? If they don't have eyes to hear, they're in real trouble. If they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear, how would we expect them to respond to a spiritual message? So if we define success as everybody we witness to gets saved, then Jesus wasn't successful. Paul wasn't successful. The prophets weren't successful, except for Jonah. He was a success. Not the model we want to follow. Right? The success, though, is does the word get proclaimed as accurately as God said it? Because if it does, it will always accomplish its purpose. It might fall on rocky soil. It might fall among weeds. It might fall along the path, but it also might fall in good soil. And God can do a work that we won't see, perhaps, until eternity. So, if we look at Jesus' example with the woman at the well, and we get frustrated, and we think, maybe I should just change my tactics. Maybe that's the problem. I, I haven't presented as clearly as Jesus did. And I've got to come up with, with something like the water thing. So, so we work on that. But remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, when I, con- when I came to you, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, we don't have to have this spiffy presentation. We don't have to come up with some wise thinking in order to accomplish the purpose that we've been called to we merely present the truth about Christ and him crucified and then the results are up to God you're in 2 Corinthians 1 I believe look at verse 12 Paul says for our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Jump over to chapter 3. We'll read this whole chapter this afternoon, but verses 4 through 6. Paul says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Chapter 4, verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And verse verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we could keep going because he keeps going with this line of reasoning. The point he's making, though, is it's not in us to change anything. It's not in us to add to the word. It's not in us to display God's wisdom through our wisdom. 
It's up to us to present the clear teaching of God's word and let it do its work. I was sharing with uh, our, our elder care group when we were doing our, dis- our last discussion. Um, this thought just kind of hit me. You know, when we add to God's word or when we try to change our, our presentation in such a way that, that we think we're making it easier to understand or we're helping people to see, it, it would be kind of like if we were at, with God at day one of creation. And God said, let there be light. And we said, hold on, God. Let me show you how that, how, how that should have looked. Let, let me do a little interpretive dance here for you and show you that, that no, because nothing we do is going to make the light come. Only God's power, only God's word. And you go day, day after day after day after day. What could we have added that would have made creation somehow better? But when it comes to this word of God, we say, oh, you know what? People aren't going to get it unless we do a drama. People aren't going to get it unless we change it into some kind of musical style that they like. People aren't going to get it unless fill in the blank. That's not the theology Paul had. That's not the theology Christ taught. What he teaches is that our sufficiency to accomplish his mission is all wrapped up in the power of his word, not in us. Because we have been conquered. We were on the enemy's team. How did, he, how did he get to us without our human wisdom? How did he get to us without our, our strategy? He got to us through his word. And Paul says that's what we should be using. The strategy we should use is to continue to proclaim what God said. We read in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You say, well, that's why we've got to use human wisdom in order for them to understand it. But the problem is they're spiritually dead. Their spirit is not going to comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. In fact, it says they're going to think they're foolish. It's craziness. And we are crazy to to try. The only thing that changes them is if they are, as Paul says to the Ephesians, if they are made alive. If God gives them spiritual life, then they can understand these things. And how do they do that? By faith. How do they get faith? By hearing the word of Christ. So the power is completely in God's word. Not in what we say. Not in what we do, not in the way in which we contort things. He said it's just through the word. They hear the word and it does its work. And it does its work 100% of the time. Isaiah 55 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He says it's always going to accomplish its purpose. It never comes back empty. And you say, but what about the people that don't listen? What about the people that reject? Well, we're going to see this afternoon what what happened in Isaiah's ministry. But God told Isaiah, I want you to go preach, and everybody that hears you is going to deny it. It's going to harden their hearts. They're not going to listen. They're not going to turn. Same book. God says, my word always accomplishes its purpose. So that means sometimes God's word's purpose is to harden a hard heart further. 
And sometimes God's purpose is to open that heart, soften it, allow growth to happen. And so Paul is going to try to help the Corinthians, and by, def- by extension us, to see that it's actually a victorious thing for us to proclaim the truth even to people who reject it. But it's also a victorious thing to those accept, who accept it. Let's look at our text, chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word, for giving us your spirit, for giving us the work and the grace of Jesus. Would you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand and to repent? May we be, as this text says, the aroma of Christ to you. And may we be used to spread the fragrant aroma of Christ to the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may not be aware of this. It's my understanding that there was a football game last Sunday. And the Kansas City whoever's played against the Philadelphia whatever's. The Bears weren't there, so it doesn't really matter. And the Kansas City whoever's beat the whatever's. And this week, and I didn't watch this, but this week there was a parade. And the Kansas City people got to have this wonderful parade, apparently. And, and you know who wasn't invited to walk in the parade? Those Philadelphia whatever's. Would have been kind of awkward, though. I mean, if you invite the losing team, hey, come to our parade. We can showcase the fact that you lost the biggest game of the year. Come on. How awkward would it be if you were one of those whatevers to be in that parade and watch the, 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 the exalted praise of the, of the winning team and to see them make a big deal out of that and, you know, whatever confetti or ticker tape or whatever they, whatever they did, just, just to, to see all of that. How enjoyable would that be for you if you were one of those Philadelphia players? Probably not a lot of fun. 
Worse would be if you lived back in Paul's day and you were part of the defeated army who were not only invited, but you were forced to follow after the winning general in his victory parade as he walks back or as he's driven back in a chariot back to the city and and everybody thunderous applause everybody is is on their feet they're throwing flowers and and they're burning incense and there's this wonderful parade of victory and behind the general is his soldiers and behind his soldiers the prisoners of war and not only do they have to endure that parade it ends at an arena where they're going to die. How much fun do you think they were having? That's the image that Paul borrows from to help the Corinthians to see how it is that we as believers are supposed to interact in the world. The the aroma that's coming up from the burning incense of the priests and some of the soldiers are carrying censers with incense and the the crushed flowers as the horses trample them. All of this smell goes up and it was called the smell of victory. But to those prisoners of war, there's a smell of death. They weren't excited by that smell. Perhaps they were terrified by that smell. And the Corinthians would have understood this picture quite well because the conquest of Corinth had been one of the most splendid uh, parties that the Roman world had ever seen. And just a few years before Paul wrote this letter to to the Corinthians... There was an example of this type of a thing. Claudius was celebrating his triumph over the Britons and and, and their king, I love this name, Caractacus. And and Caractacus, the king, has to be following in this procession, in this parade. And here's Caractacus about to die. Just a few years before Paul writes this. Something different, though, happened with Caractacus. That was cool. I wish I could plan that, really. Yeah, that would have been nice. He was spared. He actually wasn't killed. Went through that whole parade, being led by, the, uh, by his uh, captors, and they spared his life, showing that it was possible for there to be mercy and grace shown even to someone who loses. And I think that's in Paul's mind as well. Because Paul was a prisoner of war. And Paul was also someone who was used to spread the aroma of Christ. How does that work? Well, both things are happening because of the grace of God, because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's back up to verses 12 and 13. A lot of times these verses get skipped over, but I think this is kind of important for us. Uh, First of all, verses 12 and 13, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Say, what's going on with this? Why is he talking about this? Well, 
one of the things that had happened previous to Paul writing this letter is that Paul had visited in Corinth and he called that his painful visit. Is he has to chastise them for things that they were doing wrong and he walked away from it thinking, man, I, I was kind of rough on them. That was, that was painful. But when they don't repent, he writes a letter to them, a letter that we don't have a copy of and he calls that his severe letter. And he sent that by the hand of Titus. And, and the, the idea was, Titus takes it to the Corinthian church, reads it to them, provides pastoral oversight, helps them as, as they respond either positively or negatively. And then he was supposed to meet with Paul in Troas in order to give him a report. And so here's Paul thinking, how are the Corinthians going to respond to that letter? How, how, are the, how are the Corinthians going to treat Titus and he gets to Troas, and Titus isn't there. And he says, but a, a, a door is open to me by the Lord. You say, what, what is that talking about? Well, it could be that it's saying that they had given him the opportunity to share the gospel, that, that he had wide open opportunity. But if you remember, in his earlier trips, he tried to go to Asia, and yet the Holy Spirit did not allow him. So perhaps what he's saying is, this time I got there, and the Holy Spirit said, yep, go on in and preach. Hey, finally, I get to go. But instead of continuing there for a long time, he leaves, goes to Macedonia. And you say, why would you do that, Paul? Why would you leave an open door? He says, it's because, I, he says, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I left. Now, I think what Paul is doing is he's confessing his failure. He's saying, this wasn't the right thing to do but I was so concerned about what happened at Corinth and I was so concerned for my brother that I went to the next point of my journey to see if maybe he, he had gone on ahead to meet me there spoiler alert you get to chapter 7 and yep that's exactly what happened and, and not only is Titus okay but he gives a good report hey the people repented woohoo it's good news but he breaks off telling us that because what he wants us to see is the fact that he had a moral failure here. Rather than sticking to the plan, rather than saying, hey, God gave me this open door to preach the gospel, I'm going to preach the gospel and trust in the sovereignty of God to take care of Titus. He's like, ah, yeah, I can't focus right now. I'm, I'm just going to go on to Macedonia. And I think that's why he flips on verse 14, but thanks be to God. That is, I messed up, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That is, even though I messed up, even though I didn't do what I should have been doing, Christ still worked through that to accomplish his purpose. So even though we are imperfect and frequently make mistakes, God is still sovereign, God still is in control, and in Christ, he always leads us in triumphal procession. And that expression, leads in triumphal procession, that's the vision or that's the, that's the picture that he's been using of, of these Roman generals who are leading the parade, the victory parade. And everybody is praising the general for accomplishing this great victory and, and giving us more land and taking over more territory and conquering all of these people. And the ones who are still alive, they're in the back. 
And they're being led in triumphal procession as well. So there's some discussion. Is Paul saying we're one of the soldiers? Or is he saying we're one of the prisoners of war? And I think he's kind of saying both. As we started off as prisoners of war. That's, that's where we were. But Christ's victory and Christ's grace and the mercy. Notice chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart. Paul says because of Christ's mercy. I am not on my way to death anymore. He has changed me. He, he has taken me from being one who is on his way to death to being one who's on his way to life. Did he have to do that? No. I was his enemy. I was the one he was coming to conquer. And by giving me the gospel, by sharing the truth of what Christ has accomplished on my behalf, he changes me from being somebody in the very back to a soldier who's carrying one of those censers. I'm the one who gets to help give off this fragrance of victory. And he says, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This, no matter what happens, even if we failed, verses 12 and 13, Christ is still victorious. Christ's mission still is accomplished. And he's leading us in triumphal procession. He's leading us in causing us to triumph. How are we triumphing? Is it by giving the gospel and everybody being saved? No, because he's going to talk about people that are going from death to death. But there are some who are going from life to life. So he says, thanks be to God. Or the grace is God's. Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Through us. He does this. It is through our testimony, through the change in our life, through the fact that we used to be in the back on our way to death and he's changed us, through that he shows victory. Through the change in our heart, through giving us spiritual life and giving us the ability to understand the things of the Spirit, he's diffusing, the New King James says, diffusing through us this fragrance. But he's always doing that. Always. And through us, he's spreading or diffusing what? The fragrance of his victory. So we're no longer his enemy. Now we are his servants, through whom he spreads this fragrance of victory, the smell of victory. Like King Caractacus, we have been spared the death that we deserved, and we've been granted life. And Paul says it's because of God's mercy. Now, it's true. We are to spread the knowledge of him everywhere. That's true. We take the gospel message everywhere we go. But that's not what he says in this verse. It's not that we spread the knowledge of him everywhere. It's that we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The smell of Christ's victory is what we should be giving off everywhere we go. The smell of Christ's victory is what we should be giving off everywhere we go. And Paul says this is in distinction to our own smell. Chapter 4, verse 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, as he is the victorious one. He is the master. He's the ruler. 
So we don't preach about ourselves. We don't get the smell of ourself in there. We give the full smell of God's victory, of Christ's victory. We give that off everywhere. And how do we do it? Well, it's God who's doing that through us. It's through us that we give off this fragrance of Christ's victory. Because we are weak. And it's in our weakness that the power of Christ and his victory is what is highlighted. So, so Paul is going to say this later on in chapter 12. He's going to talk about his thorn in the flesh and how, how Christ allows him to have this thorn in the flesh, not just to cause him an inconvenience, but actually to, to show him that he shouldn't be trusting in his own strength. He should be trusting in the strength of God. And so he says, so I would much rather be weak so that God's power shows through me. That's, the, that's what God's looking to do. He's looking to show his power, and he's going to use a weak vessel, or as he says here in chapter 4, a jar of clay. He's going to use something that's breakable and, and fragile in order to show off the power of his message. And so it's in our weakness that the power of Christ and his victory is highlighted. So we don't want to put ourselves in the mix, whether that's by our wisdom, our fancy presentation, or whatever. That's, that's not what we're called to do. It's not about us. It's all about Christ. It was his power that, that accomplished this victory. That's what should go out. And so Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 9, we shouldn't put an obstacle in anybody's way. In chapter, uh, or, or I'm sorry, that's, yeah, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, we should be careful not to use a right that we have which would put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he talks about the fact that sometimes we put obstacles in the way and people don't get to the gospel, not because the gospel was offensive, but because we offended them before they got to the gospel. So Paul says, don't let your stink get on this. This is Christ's victory. Let that be the fragrance that people get from your life. Not you. Not your wisdom. Not your ability, not, not anything about you. you. You are a captured slave that has been joined to the military and now you're going out bearing this censer, giving off this aroma of Christ. And not just of Christ, but of his victory. He is victorious. So Christ, who saved us in spite of our wisdom, is the one who is calling us not to show off our wisdom, but to show off his, his power and his uh, glory. So if we try to show off our wisdom, it's an indication that we don't understand the power of God's word. And we're certainly not trying to give off the fragrance of his victory. He, he finishes by saying that we do this everywhere. We do this everywhere. And that, that highlights both everywhere we go, but also every occasion that we have. That, that the goal of our life isn't, boy, I want to accomplish this and I want to get that done and I want to do, go over there. And not to say that, that individual planning is bad, but just to say, hey, have you considered that the point of all of your encounters in life is to be the aroma of Christ's victory everywhere? Because Christ is victorious always. And he's always leading us in triumphal procession so that we can spread, the, so that through us, he can spread the fragrance of the knowledge of his victory everywhere. Verses 15 and 16, though, is where kind of the heart of what we've been driving towards here. 
And here he's not talking about taking the aroma somewhere else. Here he's saying this aroma points upward. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This is an upward direction. And this now is using a different picture. This is not the the, the smell of victory in the parade. This is more the Old Testament sacrificial system where God says that the smell of that sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to God. And he says we get to be the aroma of Christ to God. What aroma is he talking about? Well, Christ was sacrificed, just like the Old Testament sacrifices were the pleasing aroma, the sacrifice of Christ. And what was he being sacrificed for? For our redemption. So we who are redeemed, when when we show up and, and we've been redeemed and Christ has changed us, he says that's an aroma to God. And he's looking at the benefit of the, the sacrifice of his son, who for the glory or for the joy that he was looking ahead of time. And, and all that, that Christ says in Luke 15 about the joy in heaven when a sinner is converted. Here he says, we get to be that aroma of Christ to God. But it's not just what God's word did in our life. It's also as we proclaim the truth of Christ everywhere, then we become the aroma of Christ to God in those endeavors. So we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. You say, that's a no-brainer. That makes sense. It's the second part that we have trouble with. We can understand being the aroma of Christ to God for those who are being saved, but what about those who are perishing? What about those who are perishing? We'll see this in the afternoon service, but chapter 4, verse 3 says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Who are the perishing? These are the people who are about to experience destruction. These are the people who are in the back of the victory parade who do not get changed and are headed for destruction. And he says, we are still the aroma of Christ to God for them too. We proclaim the truth. They rejected it. And you say, oh, I failed. Nope. God says they are still the aroma of Christ to me. That that is, Christ is glorified not just in those who turn to him, but Christ is glorified and God the Father is magnified through the punishment of those who reject Christ. And the aroma of Christ is still there, is still present, just as the aroma of his victory, the general's victory, was still there, when the prisoners of war were taken to the arena. Now that's, a un, that's not a very pretty picture for us to think about. But when we consider the holiness of God, and when we consider the, the fact that we have sinned against an infinitely holy God, it is right that he punishes wickedness. I saw a video uh, not too long ago where an atheist was asking a bunch of questions in a row. Not really giving anybody a chance to answer, just a bunch of questions. Some of the questions were, how can God send people to hell? And some of the questions were, how can God allow evil in this world? And you just want to say, put those questions next to each other. To say, there's evil in this world, God should do something about it, 
and then say, but he shouldn't send people to hell. Well, okay, what do you suggest he do with those who sin against him and sin against his creation? And we don't see the incongruity of that. We don't see how, how out of whack that is. But, but for us to sin against God is an infinite crime. For him not to punish it would be to show that he's not just. Would be to show that he is not, uh, he is not holy. And he's not, he, he's not dealing with sin in a just manner. So when Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are perishing, he's highlighting a different aspect of God's character that we don't often think about in terms of the glory of God, and that is his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. If our focus is on man it might seem unfair. But here he's not saying we are the aroma of Christ to man. We are the aroma of Christ to God. Verse 16. He says, To one it's a fragrance from death to death. To the other a fragrance from life to life. So, we'll use the happier illustration. If those Philadelphia whatevers are in the back of the parade, yeah, sure, they're not going to enjoy it because their team didn't win. They're the losers. And what's being celebrated is the other team, the winners. Not a lot of fun in that. And what Paul is, is, is showing us here is that in this procession, this victory procession of Christ, there are some who are going to hear the message of Christ and because their heart is turned towards God, they're going to go from life to life. The spiritual life that God has granted to them allows them to see the beauty of this victory and allows them to respond and be changed from life to life, from glory to glory. And that's at the end of chapter 3. We'll see that this afternoon. But the others who reject it go from just being spiritually dead to being eternally dead. They go from one death to another death, a much worse death. And Paul's response is to ask the question, who's sufficient for this? Who is sufficient for this kind of ministry? He's going to tell us in chapter 3, none of us are, but God makes us sufficient. Because God is sufficient for these things. This idea of being sufficient is the idea of being worthy. It's the word that John the Baptist uses when he says, hey, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even sufficient. I'm not, I'm not qualified to bend down and untie Jesus' sandal. Paul says, who is worthy for this task? It's not us. It's Christ. And Christ makes us sufficient by changing us and calling us to this mission. It's by the mercy of God. It's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we get to take part in this ministry, but it's not because we're sufficient. If we were sufficient, then we could use our own wisdom. Paul says, we're not sufficient. Therefore, our wisdom isn't at play in this situation. What we are to use is the tool that God has given to us, and it's the most powerful tool we could use. It's his word. What about the other people? What about those who do use their wisdom? Well, he describes them in verse 17. And he says, we're not like them. 
We're not like so many peddlers of God's word or literally hucksters. We are not tradesmen. We are not tricksters. We are not people who come in and corrupt God's word for our own gain. And there are a lot of people who are like that in our day, too. Apparently, the Corinthians had that issue. Certainly, those super apostles that were getting paid for all of their stuff and not telling the truth, they certainly were hucksters. But we have denominations of people who preach a prosperity gospel. That God's design is for you to be happy and wealthy in this world. And Paul says, that is not the way we should be. We shouldn't, it's not our message, it's not our wisdom, it's not our power. Why are we getting paid for this? Why would we get rewarded for all of this work that God has done? Spoiler alert, in the future, Paul's going to say in just a couple chapters, we actually do get rewarded, just not in this life. We get rewarded with eternal glory. Does that mean that we have to be miserable throughout this life? No, because Paul's going to talk about the joys and the glory that we have in this world too. But what we're looking to is the stuff that we don't get to see yet. He talked about that in 1 Corinthians 2, that God has revealed to us stuff that he had planned from before the foundation of the world, stuff that he had planned in order to give to us on the other side of this life. And Paul says it's been hidden for a long time. Paul had the opportunity to see that glory in a vision. And you could just sense his writer's hand getting ready. Oh, I can't wait to write about this. And God says, you can't tell anybody about that yet. You can't, you can't tell all these details. And so Paul comes back and he says, I would love to tell you the details. Let me just put it this way. What you're going through in this life doesn't, doesn't, it's not worthy to be compared with what's coming next. What we have in this life, light, momentary affliction. Paul, you got beaten like many times. Yeah, light, momentary affliction. Paul, you got beaten with rods more than once. Light, momentary affliction. Paul, you got stoned and left for dead. Light, momentary affliction. Paul, you've been in prison a whole lot. Light, momentary affliction. When compared to the eternal weight of glory, Paul says, trust me. What we're going through in this life, not that big of a deal. When you compare it with all that God has planned for us. And so what do we do in this life? We get to be those sensors that God has put his incense into. So that as we go everywhere we go, in every situation we are, we're giving off this fragrance of the victory of Christ. Victory that we had nothing to do with. We can't add anything to it, but for which we get all the benefit, all the blessing. How do we share that with other people? Not by our wisdom but by giving the word of God. We spread the seed of the word everywhere we go, every occasion we have to share the victory that we have because of Christ. Let me pray.